Um, okay, so today I wanted to talk about a few last points at the end of this bracha in Shmona Esrei. We're talking about asking Hashem to help us do tshuva, to return to Torah and to do tshuva because he desires our tshuva. So when we first, first started this topic, we quoted a midrash. I think the Abu Darham brought it. And the midrash said like this. Here's how, or at least here's how the Abu Darham brought it. He said... Hmm, I thought it was right here. He compared it to... Ah. He said, why do we say hashivenu avinu lesorasecha? Our father, please return us. Why do we use the term our father about Hashem, specifically in this context of help doing teshuva? So the answer that he gives is, because he's our father, and that reminds us that we are beloved to him as a child. That's a chazal in, on Nehemiah. And then he goes on to say, quoting the Medrash in Shmos Rabbah, Torah tziva lanu Moshe, because it says, Hashivenu avinu secha, our father, return us to the Torah. So he says, we have a pasuk, Torah tziva lanu Moshe, morashah Yaakov which means the Torah that was commanded to us by Moshe is the inheritance of the community of Yaakov. So what's, what, the, what he's quoting here now is going to be the Medrash making a comment about the interesting fact that the Torah is described as an inheritance, not as a gift, not as a, you know, there's all kinds of ways you could describe it, why describe it as an inheritance? So he said, the, the Midrash says, it's comparable to a prince, the son of a king, who was held captive or somehow captured and taken away to a country far across the sea when he was just a child. If he desires to return back to his homeland, even if many years have passed, he's not embarrassed to go back because he says I'm going back to my own inheritance. And that's the same thing as a Talmud Chacham. If he leaves the words of Torah, maybe he gets slack in his learning, or, you know, maybe I remember hearing a wonderful, it's a wonderful story Rabbi Beryl Wine tells. It's one, a painful story, but a wonderful story. He says his, he got a degree to be a lawyer, and he got a job working at a law firm and his first day of work, they sent him around, I think, to, to hand out, like, um, what do they call them? Like warrants or notices, you know, to appear in court, things like that. So he ran around, and he's finding people and tracking them down. And all of a sudden, he looks at his watch, and he realized he missed Mincha. And he was so shocked with himself for missing Mincha that he made it, he, he said, that's it. I'm, he, like, vowed to himself that no matter what, he was going to be very careful with watching the times for davening so he wouldn't miss. I'm just going to close the door. So, 
A person be careful about watching the time. The times for for davening. Mm-hmm. He'll always daven shacharis before he starts work, and he'll daven mincha at the early time, even if it means stopping work for a little while to daven. He won't push it off because it's it was clear to him on that first day how if you get busy with the work, everything else could seem become secondary if you're not careful. So you could have someone who's a Talmud Chacham <coughs> and <coughs> later on he gets occupied. Maybe he has to earn a living or who knows what. And because he gets busy with things, he could abandon his Torah learning class for Shalom. And, what if, and maybe he goes and gets busy with empty things. You know, he decides he's going to move to some little community and do Kirov in a faraway place. And in order to make good connections with people, he has to go to their Super Bowl parties and their, right, whatever other things they're doing. And all of a sudden he turns around five years later and says, how am I spending all my time? What happened to my Torah learning? What happened, right? So a person could leave Torah and he could get busy with emptiness, but if he seeks to return, even if it's many years later, a Talmud Chacham is not embarrassed to return because he says to himself, like the prince in the story, I'm returning to my own inheritance. And therefore, when we say to Hashem, please, our Father, bring us back to Torah, we're saying that He's our Father because the relationship of the Father and the Son is that the Father is going, the Son is returning to the Yerusha, the inheritance, Sheyarash Me'aviv, that He inherited from His Father. Okay. So we read this way back, the very first session that we had on this bracha. And I didn't say it at the time, but it, because, I mean, I already had this other piece to go with it, but we weren't talking about that. But really, that's a somewhat strange mashal. Because the question that we had, the question over there was, why was the Torah described as a Yerusha, as an inheritance? And I don't see, at first glance, how that medrash comparing it to the son of a king helped explain why it had to be a Yerusha. It might help explain why we say father. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm never embarrassed to go home to my parents, right? Mm-hmm. But how did it explain why specifically calling it an inheritance made a difference as opposed to just going home? So I wanted to talk first about that. And I believe that the answer is something. Sorry. <laughs> I think that the answer is something that I learned from a story. It's um, from it's from a sefer. We have a book called Vehaarevna. Vehaarevna has arranged, according to all different parshas, different halachic questions and then how they would be answered. And then they tie in in some way to the Parsha. And my husband often reads these questions at the Shabbos table, and they're a lot of fun, and he read this one. And when I heard this story, I realized, oh, that really helps explain why the Yerusha, why something being an inheritance is a different sort of situation and would make it that we say, Father, bring us home. 
So I'm going to share this story with you from the book. Okay. This, this is from Vaharevna, Volume 2, on Parshas Lech Lecha, and it's called The Selfless Sofrim's Reward. He says, once there was a shoal of wealthy congregants who decided that the time had come to renovate their shoal and replace its old and worn out furniture. They spared no expense on making their shoal as beautiful as could be at the price of several hundred thousand dollars. In addition, they decided to repair their three Sifre Torah, which were in need of corrections after many years of wear. A sofer who was asked to inspect them discovered that all three Torahs were puzzle and would require extensive work to repair them. He offered to fix all three for $6,000. I can give you $1,000 for all three, said the Gabbai. The sofer saw that it was pointless to argue, so he returned the Sifrei Torah and went home. He thought, it's too much work for $1,000. He can't do it for so little, right? And then, and, and here they just spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on the rest of the show, and they're not going to put the correct money into just fixing the Torah. A week later, he received a phone call from the Gabbai. Those three Sifrei Torah are still waiting to be repaired, he said. In the meantime, the shul is still using them. They are not fulfilling the mitzvah of Torah reading, and they are saying all their brachos over Puzzle Sifrei Torah, and it's all because of you. <laughs> it has a lot of chutzpah. Yeah. Clearly, the Gabbai's claim was unfair. It was the congregation's responsibility to procure kosher Sifrei Torah, and they had no one to blame but themselves for failing to do so. However, that is how the story goes. The Sofer, who was a Yerei Shemayim, contacted another Sofer he knew to explain the situation. They decided that despite the loss of their work time, they would make the sacrifice in order to rescue their wayward brethren and they would let Hashem pay them for their efforts, even if the congregation would not. They called the Gabbai, who was happy to hear the good news. I'll bring you the first Sifrei Torah today, and we'll keep the third to use in the meantime, he said. The two Sofrim applied all their efforts over the course of a full month until finally their work was done. They drove the two Sifrei Torah back to the shul, replaced them in the Aron Kodesh, and went back home, their hearts full of joy with the knowledge of the good deed they had done. On the way back home, they needed to use the restroom, but they couldn't find anywhere to stop on a busy highway. Eventually, they found a dirt path that ran off the highway. They turned onto the path and followed it until they came to a Christian cemetery. They parked their car and started walking toward the restroom in the cemetery. When they reached the gate, they were stopped by an armed guard. Who are you and what are you doing here, he asked. They saw that there was a funeral procession going by. So they gave the guard their names and told him that they were coming to participate in the funeral because they really needed the bathroom. <laughs> ID please, said the guard, and they had no idea why security would be so tight at a cemetery, but they took out their driver's licenses and showed them to the guard. The guard wrote down their names and contact details and waved them inside. So as not to be guilty of lying, they joined the small group of people at the funeral who looked at them strangely, wondering what these Orthodox Jews were doing at a Christian funeral. The funeral was soon over, and they made use of the restroom and got back in their car and left. Two weeks later, they both received letters asking them to appear in court regarding the funeral in which they had participated. There was no need to bring a lawyer, the letter said. 
They had no idea what kind of libel might be waiting for them in court, and they waited anxiously for the day to arrive, fearing the worst. Finally, they appeared before the judge, who asked them their names and if they had participated in the funeral weeks earlier. Yes, they answered hesitantly, not knowing what to expect. With dramatic flair, the judge said, then I have some good news for you. You are entitled to $100,000 each as a token of appreciation for attending the funeral. The deceased had died, wealthy but childless, with no known relatives, and had left instructions in his will to divide his entire inheritance among everyone who would attend his funeral. On the way back home, they looked over their checks and saw that the checks were from a man named Goldstein. So even though it was a Christian funeral, the man who had died and left the money was Goldstein. It turned out that he was in fact Jewish, a Holocaust survivor who had married the Gentile woman who had rescued him. The problem was that the will was written according to civil law, but it was invalid by Torah law. According to the Torah law, his inheritance belongs to his closest relatives. In this case, it was some unknown cousins, wherever they might be. Were the Sofrim allowed to keep the money? Or perhaps not, since according to Halacha, it would belong to these unknown relatives. Okay. And the solution, the psak is, at first it seems that the Sofrim have no right to the money. Even if we say their participation in the funeral fulfilled the conditions of the will, he put participation in quotes because they didn't really mean to be there. The will was not valid according to Torah law and the money belongs to his real heirs, which by Torah law are his closest relatives. And then he gives some other possible opinions. And in the end, it says Rav Zilberstein brought these considerations to his father-in-law, Rav Elyashiv Zatzal, who replied that there are in fact rightful owners of this money somewhere in the world, even though they're not present before us. Which we don't know what relatives he has, but in Torah law, you just keep going back more generations until you find some cousin descendants. Mm-hmm. Everyone has some kind of relatives, yes. except possibly a ger. If a ger had not married and had no family, mm-hmm. then he would be cut off from his previous family and would not have Torah law relatives. But otherwise, everyone's got relatives. What right do we have to allow someone else to take their money? Therefore, according to Rav Yashiv, the Sofrim should give the money to a Beisdin to watch on behalf of the real owners until Eliyahu Hanavi comes and clarifies the owner's whereabouts. May it be soon in our days. Okay. So why did I bring this story? It's a, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think, oh, Hashem is paying them just like they said, you know. Yeah. But what this story really brought out for me was something about a Yerusha, an inheritance, which is that the moment an inheritance causes the inheritor to own the property immediately, even if he doesn't know it, and even if no one else knows who he is or where he is, he could be completely oblivious but it belongs to him 100% just because he is the child of the father. Mm -hmm. 
whether even if he didn't know that the father left it to him, that maybe he didn't know the father had passed away, even, it doesn't matter. Just because there is a relationship, it could be someone he doesn't know that he inherits it from, some seventh cousin. Just because they have the relationship, he has actual ownership. It belongs to him. And I think that that helped me to understand why the Medrash says that the Torah is an inheritance and that this we could understand as a prince when he goes back to his country, he's not embarrassed because he says, it's my own inheritance I'm going to. It's because no matter how long he's been away, if he needs to ascend the throne, then that's his duty and that's his job and that belongs to him. And there's no sense that, well, I wasn't around, I wasn't... No, it's his. So I felt that that was just, that story was very helpful in understanding why the word inheritance, when we say Hashem, bring us back to your Torah, our Father, bring us back to your Torah, we're never ashamed to go. It reminds us that the Torah is always ours to go back to. We inherited it from our ancestors, and it's fully ours. Even if we've neglected it, and even it's all the way ours, and it's ours to go back to. So there should never be any sense of unworthiness or shame. Or, right? We could feel that we haven't been acting worthy, but never feel, oh, so therefore I can't go back. Because it's yours. There's nothing to, it's yours. Okay, so that was the first point that I wanted to make in this class. Okay, here's the next one. Um, I think we... Okay, we did that. Okay, the next question is one that I saw brought in a book called He'aras Hatfila, which is an, has an amazing commentary on davening. And he asks a very fascinating question. He says, this bracha begins with hashivenu avinu lasorasecha. Lahashiv is to return. It's like the word tshuva. And then it says, v'hachazirenu b'seshuva shleimelefanecha, which is the word lachazor, which also means to go back. Why are there two different words for returning? Which is a very interesting question. What's the difference between that? Why don't we say hashivenu avinu lasorasecha or so you use the same word. He says, by the way, we see the same pattern later where we say the Hashavis Ha'avoda, that Hashem should return the Avoda to the temple, Hamachazir Shrina Salatzion, and bring his Shrina back to Zion. And also there you have those same two words. You have the word Lahashiv and the word Lachazor. He brings it also in Hashiva Shoftenu. You should return our judges. Um, and then in Berchus Hashachar, He's showing different ways that this word is used in different ways. Okay. He says, in the Torah, in Tanakh, 
we don't find the use of the word lehachazir, to return, used this way. It's in the davening, but it's not in Tanakh. In Tanakh, it's only hashava, returning with that other root. And he quotes the Malbim, who says, Lashon Shiva, this word to return, like teshuva, more sheshav el hamakom o el ha'inyan shahaya bo What it indicates is a returning to the place or the topic that you were in in the beginning. It's going back to where you started. And in Parshas Amor, okay, he gives an example from Parshas Amor. So we can understand hashivenu avinu lesora secha, return us our father to your Torah, because we already, we would, we, learning Torah is going back to where we started. What does that mean? What if somebody didn't learn Torah when they were young, right? The Medrash told us about a Talmud Chacham who, who leaves Torah and comes back. But me, you know, like, what do I? He said, no, because when a child is in its mother's womb before it's born, a Malach teaches it all of Torah. So whenever we learn Torah at any time in our life, it's really a return back to the starting place where we came from. So we're begging Hashem to bring us back to that situation where we knew all of the Torah. Please help us come back to Torah and how we were. So then what is this other word, chazara, returning? He says that is a word that chazal use, but not the Torah. And that happens. You have a lot of words like that. You have, there are definitely changes in how language was used from Torah, which is Hashem's use, right? But to the Mishnah and then to the Gemara. The language gets a little bit changed over all those years. And so it's important sometimes to know which, what you're looking at so you understand the words correctly. It says, Chazara is a word that Chazal use. And it doesn't necessarily mean the way the Shiva, Tshuva did. It doesn't necessarily mean that you get back to where you were at the beginning. It actually is Lashon Sivuv. It means to circle around. So normally, if you have a circle and you go around it, you get back to the beginning. But Lachazor doesn't have to bring you back to the beginning. It could just be that you went around and about. Okay. I guess any time you go around and about, you know, if the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? You run, you go back to the So same. if you go around, exactly, you always, you get farther away from where you started, and then you come closer to where you started by the time you're done with your curve. But you don't necessarily get back to where you started. Okay. So he gives an example um, from the Sifri, the Medrash in Devarim, Mechazer al Psachim, circling around, going around from door to door. Oh. And it uses that word, Chazara, um, going around to all the different Garonos or silos, the different storage places for the grain. Um, there's a Gemara in Erechin that says, Go back on yourself because, like, go back. You're one of the Masharim, I'm a Shoar, and we can't switch jobs. So take it back. He says there are a lot of things. We see other examples where things that are circular 
get translated into this word chazara. So it's the circling around that's the chazara, that's characteristic of chazara, not necessarily getting back to where you started. Mm-hmm. And that's why <laughs> he says that when you have to do the mitzvah of hashava saveda, the word is hashava saveda, because you need to return a specific thing back to where it started. Somebody lost their you know, jacket, you need to give back that jacket to the place where it started, which is the owner. But if it comes to returning money to somebody, then we say chazara. So if you borrowed money and then you're going to return it to somebody, it's not necessarily the same money, mm-hmm. right? If you borrow $100 from someone, they don't expect you to give them the same $100 back. Mm-hmm. In fact, they would be a little offended. Why did you trouble them to take out of their pocket $100 if you weren't even going to use it? If you lend someone money, the point is that they'll use it and then return back the same value to you. But you don't expect to get the same cash back, not the exact bills that you loaned. So that's called chazara because it's a circling back around, but it's not hashava, which is something going back to where it started. So I thought that was a very interesting difference of that. Okay, but that means then, if the difference is that hashava means going back to where you started, so then hashivenu avinu secha means Hashem, please bring us back to where we started with Torah. Mm-hmm. But then why, when we're talking about teshuva, does this bracha say, the hachazirenu, circle us around in shuva. Why doesn't it also say to bring us back to exactly where we started with teshuva? I guess we really can't go back. So one possibility, right, is that maybe we can't go back, but I think that what we want to say is something that's, it's what you said, but it's positive. It's not that we can't do complete shuva, because we can but when a person does complete tshuva, he's not where he started really because he's been through a whole different experience. He's probably stronger than he was before he started this whole journey. So that's why, for example, we say, that even though we return before Hashem and we want to get back to the state that we were before we sinned in fact it's chosrim b'tshuva we're circling around in tshuva we don't get back to exactly where we were we get back to Hashem but we're different so we had this idea when we quoted Rabbi Leichter, who was quoting the Medrash, I've, I know I've seen it in the Rashi, when he says the world was created with a hay, and he quotes that Medrash, that the hay is open on the bottom, that people can fall out. But it has an opening between the leg and the top of the hay, so that if someone wants to get back in, he can get back in. Oh. And the Malachim help him, right? Messiah, they're ready, hands are waiting to help pull him back in. And Rabbi Leichter said, the, this place you come back in is not the same place you fell out. 
You have to come back differently. You have to figure out what, you're not just trying to say, oh, I did something bad, I'm gonna not do something bad. To say, how can I change myself so that I'm coming at this in a whole different way? And that will prevent me from doing the wrong thing. No, not during school hours, but you could do that if you want to, if you're not feeling up to play. Okay. So I think that that is an interesting lesson that comes from looking at those two words of teshuva and chazara yeah. and seeing how the bracha was so careful, even though it's called teshuva, which is return, back to where you started, and yet the verb that's used over here is the circling back. And I think that image of the hay, where you come out the bottom but you circle back through the top, perfectly expresses that idea of chazara and shuva, which is you do kind of get back to where you started, but what the verb points you to is that you circled around, you came around a different way. And you're not the same as where you were in the beginning. We had so much to help us, like the yeshivas and yes. so much to help us come back that they didn't have in the beginning. They had something because that medrash that talks about the hay, yes. where the upper hole is to come back through. Mm-hmm. So that same medrash says, Habalataher Messiahlo, one who comes to make himself pure, they are there to help him. So maybe they didn't have Balchuva yeshivas and Kirov rabbis and Eshat Torah, right? But there were definitely, Hashem has always put forces and malachim and siyata dishmaya and influential people who are always there with a helping hand ready to help somebody who brings himself to come back in. Okay. It seemed to be a period there where there was nothing. I mean, in the first place... They were so religious and yeah. Hashem, they had everything. And then there seemed to be a period where we went back. I think it has been a constant ebb and flow. Yeah. Because when you look at the, even, I mean, Rabbi Hirsch says, mm-hmm. if anyone feels despair because of the terrible spiritual situation of our generation, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, 150 years ago, He says, don't despair. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look back at the time of the Maccabees and Hanukkah. He says, it was never as bad as that. That was, the Jews themselves were trying to emulate the Greeks. And that was where all the trouble started. And you had this one family of Matisyahu, the Kohen Gadol, and his children who stood up. Eventually, other people joined them. But it was one household Right? He said that's a lesson of Hanukkah with the one flame of light, with the one cruise of oil, is that all it takes is one. But what it takes, so it seems like the situation has been pretty bad off and on. There were some very good times. There was in the desert that where people were really at a, such a high level. And some of the times in the first temple, especially the very beginning, in the time of David and Shlomo, right? So there were some very good times, but the struggle has always been going on. Sometimes we're better than others, it seems. Yeah, but yeah. Still, we look back there and we see what, how yeah. great they were. And yeah, even at their worst, they were pretty good. Some, uh, where did I hear this? I was saying about Ahav. Ahav was a very wicked king in, of Israel. Very wicked. He, he killed, you know, it was really terrible. 
And uh, he was the, sort of, his nemesis was Eliyahu Hanavi. You know, like he, Ahab was really bad. But when Eliyahu Hanavi was hiding for a long time, there were birds, crows, that would bring him meat and he would eat it. And the crows were getting this meat from Ahab's kitchens. And they were stealing from Ahab. Ahab was trying to kill Eliyahu. So Eliyahu was hiding. So these birds were stealing from Ahab's kitchen meat and bringing it to Eliyahu so that Ahab is really sustaining him even while he's chasing him. And I heard somebody point out, you know, you know what that means is that we think of Ahab the Russia. Mm-hmm. He had a perfectly kosher kitchen. Even a Navi would eat out of his kitchen. <laughs> you know? So... Sometimes, like what we think of, it doesn't mean it doesn't excuse people for what they've done wrong. Yes. But even even that standard was in such a different place than what we're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Where we would we wouldn't normally think of somebody. You know, we we would all be fine eating in his home. We might not like him very much, but we'd be okay in his home. Okay. Um, so I have another another piece here. This is from Rabbi Shimon Schwab in his book, Mayan Beis HaShoeva, on Chumash. And the, question, the way he starts this question, but then it applies the same to the bracha that we have over here. Let me start with the bracha that we have here. The question we must ask is, why do we have this bracha every single day? And why does everybody have to say it? And if we're talking about the good old days, right, when it was the Anche Knesses Hagadola, you know, maybe Mordechai was still alive even, maybe not, like Shimon HaTzadik, like these people, there were, some of them were Nevi'im, and they were figuring out exactly what the language had to be in our Shmona Esrei. Why did they think they needed to say this every day? Please help us do tshuva. Were they sinning? These are tzaddikim, they weren't sitting. So why do we have to say this every day? So the way that he introduces this question is by asking, how come on Yom Kippur, when we have fasted for 25 hours and we davened Mayriv and we davened Shachris and Musaf and Mincha and a Ne'ilah and a Ma- and then Yom Kippur ends and right away we daven Mayriv, right? We don't even, usually unless someone is very weak, we don't even break the fast. We go straight from Ne'ilah into Mayriv and then we'll break the fast after. He says, how come when we say that myriv, after we've been so elevated from a whole day of tshuva and fasting and davening, and all of a sudden we say a myriv and we say the same words. We didn't even have time to sin. What sins could we possibly have done in 20 seconds since Ne'ilah? Right? So he's, it, there wasn't enough time. And the whole time we've been fasting and trusting in Hashem that it's Yom Kippur and he will forgive us for our sins. That's part of the avodah of Yom Kippur. So this almost sounds like we don't trust him that he... Because it's like, what is this about? And he says, the same question you could ask really on every weekday. Because really, why this bracha should only be when you notice that you've sinned or something. Like, why would they say that we have to say this all the time? So he gives an explanation. He says it's because there's more than one kind of teshuva. 
There's tshuva me'ahava, tshuva of love, and tshuva from yira, tshuva out of fear. And when somebody does tshuva from love, then the Gemara tells us in Yuma, even their, their sins that were on purpose become merits. A person did a sin and he did it on purpose and then he did real tshuva and he did it out of love of Hashem. Now his old sins are no longer sins. They're mitzvahs. Because they helped him, right? If he hadn't had those sins, he would never have felt so terrible and had to fix it. And it brought him closer in his love of Hashem. And so now really those those averas turned into mitzvahs. And he quotes the Sepharno, who quotes from the, the Pesukim with the Mitzvah of Tshuva. The Hashivosa Elovavecha Veshavta Hashem Elokecha Veshamata Bekolo. Okay, you have to think about your Tshuva and see what's the truth and tell the truth from the falsehood. And you will notice how far you have drifted from God on high and then you should return to him in order that you will want to do Hashem's will alone. That is the kind of Teshuva when a person does wrong and then they are suddenly dismayed when they realize how far they've gotten from Hashem and they seek to come back close to him, sort of like this, draw us near to you in avoda of Hashem, that drawing close to him. Then that kind of tshuva is the type that's described as maga'as ad kisei hakavod. It reaches all the way up to the kisei hakavod, to Hashem's holy throne. Okay. But what if a person does teshuva from fear? Maybe he heard a real fire and brimstone, you know, shear. And now he's afraid of punishment. He's afraid of punishment in this world. You know, a person... God forbid there's somebody sick in the family. That can also bring a person to do tshuva, maybe because they're afraid something bad will happen to them. Somebody in the family who's not well, or who knows, right? They're afraid that the politics are scary, the, there's a war threatening. People could be afraid of bad things that will happen to them, punishment. And because of this, they do tshuva. They say, Hashem, I'm going to do better. I promise. Please just don't let that happen to me. Yeah, don't let Hashem punish me. Please don't punish me. Please save me from this problem. Okay? That's not bad. It's still tshuva. Mm -hmm. But it's tshuva from fear. Mm -hmm. Tshuva from fear of punishment in this world or even tshuva with fear of punishment in the next world. A person Mm -hmm. can suddenly be overwhelmed and think, oh, in the next world I'm going to, you know burn in hell or something, and then they're also terrified and they daven. But we don't have time to change once we're there. Right, but a person could catch, capture, in a separate place, the Gemara says, there are people who acquire the next world in a moment. In a moment. It doesn't take long for a person to have very pure thoughts. They're hard to sustain, but to get there can happen in a moment. Okay. So... He says, if a person does tshuva out of fear of punishment, it doesn't turn the sins into mitzvos. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still a very good thing. Mm-hmm. 
but the level of tshuva from love is much higher. That turns the sins into mitzvos. When a person does tshuva out of fear of punishment, it doesn't turn the sins into mitzvos. He still did sins. Just the sins are, are covered up. He says, it's like you pulled a blanket over them. Mm-hmm. So you don't see them anymore. They're under there. And you might even notice that there's some lumpiness. And you have to be careful where you walk because now there's like a bump on the floor. <laughs> right? Because it's there. Mm-hmm. But it's there and it's not obvious. It doesn't bother. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and the reason that it doesn't take away the sin, it could take away the punishment. Because he's doing tshuva properly. But it doesn't take away what he did before. There's still the existence of the fact that he did something wrong. And now he's changing. Okay. He says, that's because when a person does tshuva out of fear, he hasn't drawn closer to God. When you're afraid of somebody, you're pulling away. So even if he's doing tshuva, He's doing the right thing, and he's afraid of punishment, and that's okay. That's the beginning, you know. But he hasn't gotten himself closer to Hashem, which means he hasn't fixed the underlying problem. When you get closer to God, that by itself is the real cure. That's the real cure for Averis, is the closeness. And that is only achieved with tshuva from love. Because when tshuva with love, a person can draw closer and closer and closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And he can recognize more and more Hashem's greatness and Hashem's love in his life. And he can appreciate more and more how his own actions and sins are what caused the sense of distance between him and God. And through this increase of knowledge and understanding and closeness to Hashem, it will also increase his concern about his past. Bye. Bye. It makes him feel worried. Whoa, what did I do? Why did I do that? Yes. Is there anything I can do to repair it? Yes. Right? Yes, but not awesome. because he's afraid of the punishment. It's because it worries him that he did things that were wrong and that took him farther from Hashem that he's learning to love more and more. And therefore, a person who has this kind of love for Hashem and is always striving to feel close to Hashem, such a person is actually doing, working on tshuva every day of their life. They're trying to think about tshuva. Not because they're afraid, but because they're concerned about what they've done wrong and they want so much to be close to God. And this is why we have this bracha in Shemona Esrei. Hashivenu avinu l'sora secha every single day. Return us, Hashem, to your Torah and draw us close to you in your avoda and help us to return with complete teshuva. Mm. That's every single day because... From any amount, a person every day of his life can be trying to become more of a Balchuva. It doesn't matter how you started, that you were born the, the child of a Rosh Hashiva. Every day, there's an effort. When you love God, there's an effort towards more Tshuva. Every single day, 
we say, Hashem, thank you for the knowledge and insight you give us. And through our greater knowledge of God, the next realization is, oh no, if I had known then what I know now, I would have done things differently. I would have done it even better. Maybe I didn't sin, but I could have done it better, but I didn't know. I didn't realize. So once I've dove into Hashem and asked for das, for knowledge, the next thing, or appreciated the knowledge, the next realization is going to be, oh my goodness, if I only knew then what I know now. And from there comes more teshuva, and that's teshuva that draws us closer to Hashem with love, little by little and more and more. And also on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur can forgive our sins, just living through Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is like somebody pouring a whole mikvah over your head and you just get cleansed, right? But it doesn't, if it happens to us, if Yom Kippur happens to us, it is mitahir us, but it doesn't take away the fact that we sinned. It doesn't turn it into mitzvos, right? So even when you've gone through a whole Yom Kippur, there's still room for this sense, well, I'm not as close to Hashem as I realize I could be, and I still want to draw closer. So even the minute Yom Kippur is over, you start Mayriv, and you can still be saying the bracha asking for tshuva, because that, they don't contradict each other. There's still always this room to understand more and more and draw closer and closer to Hashem. I found on Yom Kippur when <clears throat> I was just fine till maybe about four o'clock when they said, uh, take a walk. Oh. Then I got out of it and I, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to stay yes. where I was. But then when I started taking the walk, then I wanted to go home. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes when you're so in the mindset, that keeps you going, right? It just keeps you moving. Okay, so it's a little bit late. I think I would like to make do one more idea, and I think that that's going to complete this bracha. And next time, Emir Hashem, we'll start the next bracha. Okay, so I wanted to to end with a, with an idea from Yeshaya. The book of Yeshaya. So in Yeshaya, he describes. He describes a whole interesting, um, interesting nevuah, where it's almost like he's overhearing what's going on in heaven. Hello. And he said to him, Yeshaya says that he said. I have to be silent. He, he's listening to what's happening in heaven. He says, I have to be silent because I am a person with tame lips and I live in the middle of people with tame lips. So who am I? Who am I to speak up mm-hmm. and comment? And then one of the malachim, it's a type of malach called a saraf. It's a very high, fiery kind of malach. He says a saraf flew up to him, and in his hand he had a burning coal. 
And he was holding this, and he took it with tongs off of the Mizbeach, and he touched it to the mouth of Yeshaya. And he said, here, this is going to touch your lips, and your sin will be removed. Techupar, and you'll be forgiven. Okay, so Yeshaya was saying, I can't say anything, because my mouth is Tameh. And he like burns it with a coal and says, okay, now it's clean. And then, says Yeshaya, I heard the voice of God saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I, Yeshaya said, send me. I'm ready. I'm prepared to go and do whatever it is you tell me to do. So Hashem said, okay, you go tell the nation, you hear, but you don't hear. You don't understand. You see, and you see, and you don't pay attention. And you're, basically, you're ignoring all the messages I'm sending you, and you're not doing tshuva. Okay, so this is the beginning. Yeshaya is describing his first nevuah, his first prophecy, where... He, said, he felt that he wasn't worthy to speak. And then Amalek put a burning coal on his mouth and said, now you're pure. And then Hashem said, who can I send? And Yeshaya volunteered. He volunteered to be the Navi. Okay. So here's the piece I wanted to say. What Yeshaya learned at this moment, I'm reading now from Rabbi Schwab's commentary on Isaiah. What Yeshaya learned at this moment of the initiation of his prophecy was that a human being, a Yisrael, with his power of free choice can transcend even the level of Malachim. Yeshaya had seen a saraf taking a hot coal from the heavenly Mizbeach it was too hot even for the saraf, the spiritual creature, to handle. He ha- it's, it describes the saraf using tongs to get it out, right? I'm sure they weren't physical tongs. But in other words, it was indirect. He couldn't touch it directly. And then the saraf touched it to Yeshaya's lips, and his lips were not burned. Mm. He had learned that the lips of a human being, who is a Baal Bechira, who has free choice, can be hotter even than a spiritual coal that Malachim cannot touch. When human lips speak truth, when they could have spoken untruth, when they choose to utter words of kindness or constructive chastisement, when they could have spoken hurtful words or kept silent when other people were going into trouble and forthright speech was necessary, then the person who has free will becomes even greater than the lips of the Malachim who praise Hashem saying, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzavakos, Melokol Haaretz Kevodo. Okay. Which is quite an astonishing idea. This idea that through our words and through our choices, the level that we can achieve through our striving close to God, is even higher than a malach. Okay, and then Hashem sends this message 
through Yeshai. Yeshai volunteers to go, and Hashem says, tell the people that they hear and they hear and they don't understand, and they see and they see and they're not paying attention. So what is this about? Hashem is saying, you don't really want to pay attention to the words of Nevi'im because you don't want to take their words to heart. Because if you take their words to heart, you'll do tshuva. But if only you would listen, right? Sometimes people don't want to do tshuva because the place where they are is so negative, right? They just want to have fun. They're thinking, I don't want to get better. I like it how, down here, right? And Hashem is saying, if only you would pay attention, the message would reach in your heart and you would do tshuva and you would want to do it. The problem is that you're screening out the messages. So Yeshaya is saying, the reason the words of the Nevi'im have made no impression on you is because your lives are overfilled with an abundance of pleasure and luxuries. And it makes your minds lose the capacity to react. It's like fat. It's like a hardening of the arteries. The Nevi'im's words of chastisement cannot penetrate your thickened heart and your fat stop at the ears. Your eyes glaze over when they try to show you the light. The attraction of a good life is the work of a Yetzirah. David HaMelech battled with it until finally he could say, my heart is, is numb within me. But a Jew also has a Yetzir Tov, a powerful desire to do good which gives him no rest until he performs this mitzvah or that mitzvah. And that drive can be just as strong as the Yetzirah. So just like a person can kill a Yetzirah through fasting, like David HaMelech, a person can kill a Yetzirah Tov by overeating. So the opposite. Okay, so this kind of state for tshuva In Shemona Esrei, when we stand like a malach and we separate it, we take three steps out of this world and into another world. And we hold our arms together and our legs together so that we're not moving around, we're not trying to get something done. It's a chance to just stop and be still and pay attention. That's number one. Because Hashem is saying, you are not paying attention. I'm telling you and telling you, and you just won't even stop and listen. So one is this opportunity to stop and pay attention. And another element over here, another element over here is, is what we said already from the beginning, which is that these are bakashos. These are asking Hashem for what we need. That in this part, the whole bulk of Shemona Esrei is approaching Hashem through a sense of need. It's the opposite of a sense of surfeit, having too much luxury. That having a sense that I have too much, it's good to appreciate what we have and thank God for it. But if a person indulges himself, then he makes himself cut off from tshuva. It's very hard to hear the message of God that way. And it kind of numbs the Yetzir Tov. Whereas if we can tune in and realize there are still needs that we have, that helps us turn to Hashem for our needs. And that helps us tune in and get closer to him. So I think that all brings it around again, this whole teshuva. 
brings it back around. So that will conclude our, our study of this bracha. And Amir Tzashem will start the Slachlanu bracha next time. Thank you. I, Thank um, you. It's so easy, you know, you think sometimes of these things that happen to you, like if I fall down, it was, uh, it was Hashem's will. Yes. And I say, maybe that's what I needed at the time. Yes. And I, I don't like it, but I think, well, Hashem gave me that then, and I have a lot to, to make better, you know, in my well, life. If we understood, the Vilna Gaon said, when, if we understood how much benefit comes to us from the difficulties, uh-huh. we would be so grateful. We would be singing praise of God for them. That's right. The problem is we don't understand, but that's part of... If we, if we did understand, it would be hard for us to feel the suffering. That's right. And we need that also. Yeah. It helps us. I know originally when, after Yoel was 10 years in yeshiva, he wrote and said he would like to come to visit. And don't worry if you don't have things kosher. Uh, you can just put paper things for me. Aww. And I wrote him and said, we want to become kosher. We don't know how to do it. Yeah. And he said, I guess he had consulted his Rob. He said, it's a mitzvah to make somebody kosher. And I'm coming, and it took him several years, but he was able to do it. And I think of, I think of my, grand, my grandmother's name was Esther Josephson. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I like to make connections that Joseph's son yeah. brought us back to Torah. Isn't that beautiful? She was a, she was a, a religious person. Wow. But the man she married was, uh, he came over here from the old country mm-hmm. and he was selling things in a push cart mm-hmm. and people wouldn't buy them because he has seed seed and nobody brought, he took everything off that he had from that made him kosher and he saw that he sold. Mm-hmm. So she, she married him and no, it was a good marriage, but we have a picture of him and no yarmulke. And, and Yoel looked at that picture and he said, he, there, I see a little smile on his face. He's glad that we all came no. back. I'm sure it's a yeah. very, is she there? It's a very big merit for him. Yes. So thank you so much. I had this year thank all you. to myself. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful that you came. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll get yeah, the door. So much like you said to be grateful for and so much. I look around sometimes. I say nothing is mine. It's all yours, Hashem. Yes. I'm yours, you know. That's amazing. Everything is yours, you know. And That's the best. Yes. And um, it's, we all have a lot to be grateful for. We're grateful for you. Yes. We're grateful for Thank you. Thank you. I love this year. Love you too.